Our Heavenly Father, do we do thank you. And we know that uh, in this day and age, uh, life is difficult and busy and crazy. And what it means to be church uh, today and in the future is, is not all that clear. But we know, God, that you call us together as people into a spiritual family to care for the needs of one another. And so we come before you, God, asking that you would bless us and that you would reveal to each one of us how you have gifted us and how you're calling us to serve in this place. God, we each know that uh, it's not just that the blessings that we want from you, but it's, it's how we want you to use us to be a blessing that ultimately defines our relationship with Jesus. So we ask that you would bless us in these ways today and speak to us through your word and your spirit, not only about ministry and serving, but all the ways that you are calling us forward to be your people in this time and in this place. And we will thank you and we will praise you through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, by the way, just a quick reminder, if you have a, a device like a phone or an iPad or a tablet, uh, we do have a church app. Uh, it's just a great way to get more information and stay connected. And you can fill out a digital connect card like the one you see in your seat back in front of you. If you're watching at home online, you can use that app uh, to turn in a connect card and just say, hey, I'm interested in talking to somebody about student ministry or uh, I have a prayer request or uh, I'd love to you know, uh, have somebody contact me because I'd love to have some questions answered about the church or about faith or about life. So don't hesitate to uh, reach out to us electronically as well. Today we're in our third and final of a three-part series that we're calling Amazed, which is a recurring summer series that we've been doing uh, in the book of Psalms, where we're taking opportunities during the summer months to uh, go back and be reminded of some of the, the songs and the prayers and the wisdom teachings that represent this amazing collection of uh, writings that we call the Psalms. Uh, we started in Psalm 37, which is a psalm of hope when uh, life uh, around you might seem to be going uh, the opposite direction of what you would want or hope for. Uh, when the world runs away from God and, and there's you know, hope to be found, how do you find hope in those seasons? Last week we talked about how do you find hope in your relationship with God when you mess up, when you make mistakes, when uh, you're the one who turns your back on God and runs away. And today we're going to also look at Psalm 121, which is a psalm of hope and to some extent when the road of life becomes difficult. When God might seem to be absent, when you wonder, as the psalmist will ask when we get into it in a minute, where does my help come from? But before we get there, Psalm 121 starts with this title, A Song of Ascents. And, and so I want to just uh, unpack that for us a little bit. There are 15 Psalms of Ascent in the, the, the collection of writings called the Psalms, or what we would call the Psalter. Uh, and these psalms of ascent are, are typically uh, attributed to um, traveling songs. I, I love that uh, Sharon and Faith and Rose talked about their traveling songs and learning. We talked about it in the choir room. It's like, you have no idea how this is going to tie into the sermon today. <laughs> Right? But these, these are songs that, that the people memorize that they would sing together on their journey of 
pilgrimage to Jerusalem because back in the day they were living all over the country and some of them were even in foreign countries and that three times a year when they'd have these feast days, uh, people would travel from all over the known world back to Jerusalem. And, And on your way to Jerusalem, if you know anything about the geography, Jerusalem was built on a hill. And so to get to the city, you had to to follow the road up to the city. And so you would ascend to to the city of Jerusalem. And so these songs of ascent were traveling songs. They were traveling prayers that people would sing to to prepare their hearts for worship, to remind themselves of who God is, and, and to encourage one another on the road of life. They're especially suited to be sung because these particular psalms, which represent, are rep- represented by Psalm 120 through 134, so they're collected into this section in the book, but they're fairly short. They're typically characterized by a key word or a phrase that's repeated over and over again to try and kind of get the point to stick, right, which a lot of songs do. And so today, Psalm 121 is often considered a a blessing for people who are going on a journey. Or in uh, Hebrew culture and families, it's often used for newborn babies. They'll put it up uh, over their crib or or in the delivery room at the hospital because these are, are, are young people who are just starting out the journey of life. And so in verse 1, Psalm 121 begins by saying, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so even right here, the psalm begins with a with a question, which, uh, you know, questions are, are, are designed to prompt reflection. They're trying to engage us in, in thinking about what is being asked and how do we maybe begin to, to think about in the context of our own life, in our own personal journey, in our own relationship with God. And as we come to God and his word this morning, maybe we need to ask the question ourselves, where does my help come from? Or maybe a better way to ask it is, where am I currently looking for my help to come from. Because we know that the journey of life is hard. It's difficult. Life is not easy. Whether we're facing physical injury and disease, including war and natural disasters, or the economics that we struggle with, whether it's recession or unemployment or struggling under the mountain of debt or, or even experiencing theft when somebody robs us of, of, our, of our stuff or our money, uh, even the spiritual challenges that, that can often be more deeply felt and harder to overcome of doubt and sin and uh, experiencing the evil of this world or falling victim to false teaching or corruption even in the church. Right? There are so many pitfalls and dangers and risks. And, and, and if you're a parent, you start to feel those immediately because we don't care as much about our own risks. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of face risks and, 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 and play life loose. But when it's your kids, right, and you start to go, whoa, <laughs> I, I need to be a little concerned. This, this world is not a safe place. And when you see those little innocent, helpless babies, you start to recognize what the Bible talks about and how important it is to be a protector and a guardian and a parent to those little ones, right? What more natural question is there to ask then if you've ever been a parent, right? 
or if you've ever tried to care for somebody else, oh my goodness, where's my help come from? Because we know we don't have the, 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 the wherewithal to do it by ourselves. Our, our, our resources are not limitless. Our, our energy uh, fades. We, we can't just go on day after day and not have anyone to come alongside and say, it's okay, I got your back. You don't have to do it alone. And yet too often in our world, in our culture, we are taught and we're conditioned in both overt and covert ways that you are an island and that you're supposed to be smart enough and strong enough and wise enough to be able to not only manage life on your own, but you should be successful and you should be wealthy and you should be famous. And if you're not all these things, then what's wrong with you? And so as you reflect on your own life's journey today, What are the fears or the threats that you worry about, that you carry in your heart, in your mind, that that weigh on you as you think about your life and the path that you're on? And maybe it's not so much a concern for you as it is for the people in your family or the people that are close to you that you love or uh, young people in your life that you, you have a heart for because you know how dangerous the world is that they're launching into. Well, what is it that you carry with you today as you come? to worship, and you ascend the mountain of God to approach the holy city and to pray for God's blessing in your life. You see, mountains in the Bible were often places of danger and risk, but they were also considered deeply spiritual places, right? At these higher elevations, as you climb to the mountaintop, it was believed that you would get closer and closer to the place where God lived, right? God was up there in the sky. And so if you went to the high places, it brought you closer to God. You might remember that Moses met with God and received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And Scripture frequently refers to the heights of Jerusalem as the holy mountain of the Lord, where God dwells and the city of the great king is. Now, you know, we live in the backyard of Mount Rainier, so, you know, a little hill that has a, a city on it might not seem like a mountain to us, but, it, but it's, a, it's a symbol, right? It's, it's the idea. In our modern scientific understanding, we might think it seems a little silly to think that if you can just get to a higher elevation, somehow it's going to make you closer to God. But before we too quickly judge uh, their perspective, at least when I was growing up, I don't know how it was for you, but, but it was common for people to talk about having a mountaintop experience. When you're referring to some spiritually significant moment in your life, when, when, when you had some deeply personal encounter with God, where, where God became real in a whole new way that you've never experienced before, where you, you felt like God was speaking into your life directly, and, 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 and you had this experience that felt like you were on a mountaintop, right? Looking down on the world, like the whole world was, was before you, and, and you had hope, and you had joy, and you had excitement, and we always had to talk about it, but don't forget, you got to come back down into the valley. <laughs> and where do you find hope and help when you're in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death and not just living on the mountaintop? Even in the New Testament, mountains play a significant symbolic role in the life of Jesus and his disciples. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 5, Jesus gives his seminal sermon on the Beatitudes and what does it actually mean to be a follower of him as one of his disciples? What does it look like in your life when you actually begin to put his teaching into practice? And that sermon has come to be known as what? The Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Mountain. Or when Jesus was supernaturally revealed to his disciples to be the chosen one, to be the Messiah, right? It says he took them up on a mountaintop where he then supernaturally appears along with Moses and Elijah, who were two other prophets who also met with God on the mountaintop. They called it the Mount of Transfiguration. Or who can forget that it's called Mount Calvary? The place where Jesus' own humiliation and death on the cross brought to fruition God's promise to provide an answer for sin and death and the devil, which ultimately led to his eternal victory over death and the devil through his resurrection and his ascension, where? Up into heaven, right? And the whole arc of the story of the Bible, we know the Old Testament, the New Testament comes to a conclusion in the book of Revelation where we get this glimpse of the the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion, the city of God, the eternal dwelling place of Christ the King, the place to which God has promised that all those who put their faith and trust in Him will one day get to enter into this holy city and dwell with God forever and ever and ever. And so in the context of this biblical story and what the people of Israel would understand, it means to to lift your eyes to the mountains. When your world turns dark and your journey gets hard and your energy begins to wane and your emotions tell you that there is no hope and that there is no way forward and maybe you should just give up, where do you turn for help? What is the source of your confidence to go on living in such a dark and a difficult world? Is it yourself? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Or maybe it's your career or your bank account. Where do you turn your eyes first? What do you look to when you need a boost of confidence and hope? See, the action of lifting your eyes up, scholars suggest, implies looking at something longingly or with desire or maybe more with confidence. What is it that you put your confidence in rather than looking at something with fear or worry or dread? So lifting your eyes to the mountains in a biblical context indicates a confident belief in God's presence and power as the only thing that can truly be your source of hope and help. You see, the Hebrew word that's translated here as help doesn't, doesn't quite do justice to the term, apparently. Most often, when it's used in connection with God, it just doesn't mean that God's going to offer some assistance, you know, like God's roadside assistance. Hey, God, I got a flat. Could you come and, you know, kind of get me back on the road again? You know, he does that kind of thing, but that's not what he's talking about, right? The kind of help that the psalmist is talking about is God's divine uh, protection and salvation that comes that he promises for his people and that he says is always available and present when we ask him. 
It, says, it suggests that God is not only aware of the, the many details of your life and the flat tires that you get along the way, but that he's prepared to walk with you on the journey and to help you in ways that no one else can. That's why, in fact, it says in verse 3, he will not let your foot slip. You know, maybe in modern parlance, he won't let your tire go flat. <laughs> He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, it says in verse 3 and 4. The word shamar, translated in the NIV as watch, which is the word that's repeated over and over again in Psalm 121, occurs six times in the final three sections. There's only eight verses in Psalm 121, but again, God's watching is not seen as kind of this passive observation. Right? As if God is sitting on his throne up in heaven, watching down on all of us, you know, human ants scurrying around on his planet and going, hmm, well, that's interesting. You see, the word shamar is also translated to guard or to protect. So God is not just watching you, he's watching over you. God is standing guard over you. As his people, we are all under the divine protection that he has promised those who follow him. He acts as the guardian of his people. Now, apparently, back in, in biblical times, they had a problem with sleeping deities. You see, within the religious context of the ancient Near Eastern tradition, the gods were frequently assumed to have human characteristics and they were prone to get drowsy and to fall asleep. <laughs> and if you came across your god sleeping, uh, the last thing you wanted to do was wake him up. Because if you woke up a sleeping god, who knew how they were going to react? I guess these deities, these you know, small G gods got worn out from answering all those prayers and bestowing all their blessings and providing fertility and crops and wealth and all the things that people prayed to these idols for. Uh, and, and they got worn out in, in the performance of their godly duties. So often people, like I said, would attribute these more human characteristics to the gods. And if they're anything like we are, we'd assume that they tend to get tired and fall asleep. I mean, how else can you explain that, that when you've prayed to your God and you've sacrificed to your God and you've done all of these ritual things and, and God doesn't come through for you, well, God must be asleep. You know, what other answer is there? And so in contrast to all these small g gods that were prevalent in the culture of the time, Psalm 121 flips the notion of who God is completely on its head. That, that this God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the one who called the people out of nothing and formed them to the people that he made and called to himself is himself the guardian of those people. This God remains awake and on watch to protect his people. He doesn't get drowsy. He doesn't need to sleep. God never accidentally nods off. <laughs> He's always attentive. And he always is, is involved in active watchfulness over your life and my life. So that not even a foot will slip off the path. 
And so if you ever find yourself wondering, where is God? Why does God seem to be absent? It's not that God is asleep. It's not that God has turned his back on you. It's the fact that, that you've lost sight of him, that, that you might not understand where he's working or how he's working, but in faith you can know that this is the God who never sleeps and never slumbers, and you can bake your faith that he's at work and he'll find a way forward for you. kind of reminded me of the story of Jesus and the disciples, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 38, Jesus said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here, and here's that word again, keep watch with me. And so he goes away to pray, and what happens? Right? They can't do it. They can't stay awake. So in verse 40, it says he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Jesus said. You see, in, in contrast to our own human frailties and failings and shortcomings where, where we always end up letting each other down, Psalm 121 encourages us to have full confidence that God is a God who will never let you down. In verse 5, he goes on to say, The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. Kind of a weird phrase, the shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. Again, using symbolic imagery here, poetic imagery that would be familiar to the people in that day. Uh, the, uh, the psalm combines the notion of God providing shade for his people who lived in a desert culture, but also standing at their right hand. So apparently because soldiers at that time typically carried their shields on their left arm, right? The right side of your body was the side that was always exposed. And so to have a, a, a comrade or a friend standing at your right hand with their shield, you were, you were better protected having somebody at your right hand. So God is that friend who, who will always stand at your right hand. He'll, he'll always watch your flank. He'll, he'll always stand in the gap for you. Fending off potential threats and, and fighting side by side with you as, you as you go through life. Psalm 16, 8 says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Or Psalm 109, 31 says, For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. You see, adding to this, the idea that the Lord stands at our right hand, it also claims that he is a protective shade or a shadow. And the, the, the shade or the shadow of God is most often connected in the Bible to, to the maternal instincts that God has, like a mother hen or a mother eagle who will spread the shade of her wings over her chicks and gather them to herself. See, it says that God spreads his loving protection over you and over me, like children that he cares for and that he loves better than a mother's love, better than a father's love, in ways that no one else ever can. Psalm 36, 7 says, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. 
God says that he will protect his people from the searing heat of the sun by day and, and of the dangers of the moon by night. And, and, and scholars suggest that by talking about the, the sun and the moon and the day and the night, they're, they're bookends that describe all of life. Every day, in every way, we would say 24-7, God's got your back. God stands as the protective covering, the shade over your life so that nothing will ever harm you. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all harm or, or literally all evil. And, and this isn't suggesting that God's people will never experience difficulty or pain or suffering. It, it's that God is there to be the answer when life throws you curveballs. See, when, when life throws you lemons, God's your lemonade. God's the one who can take all of the experiences of life in this world and turn them not just to, to, to our good, but for his glory. God is the one who will watch over your life, it says in verse 7. Verse 8, the Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Coming and going, again, are bookends to describe all of life, when we, we go out to work in the morning and when we come home from work in the evening and when we go out to play and we come home, it's you're coming and you're going. And How many of you feel like your life is just always kind of involved in this constantly coming and going and coming and going and coming and going and you just wanted to make it stop? Well, you know, especially moms who drive teenagers around, <laughs> right? You're always coming and going. In the busyness, in the hecticness, in the rat race world that we live in, God is always protecting you and with you and guarding that coming and going, whether you realize it or not. And see, and by repeating this word that NIV translates to watch, shamar, three times in this last section, uh, scholars suggest that this is kind of the crescendo of the psalm. He's driving home the point for those who are willing to accept it, that God is the guardian and the keeper of all of life, and that he is worthy of your hope, and he's worthy of your trust, and you can put your confidence in him. The Lord will watch over you. The Lord will keep you. The Lord will preserve your life. The Lord will protect you. You're going out and you're coming in, not only today, not only in this time, but now and forevermore. That is the whole promise of God's salvation. That is the good news gospel that we see come to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. Psalm 121 understands that, that the journey to God and, and, and the journey with God never really occurs in a vacuum, but rather it happens in the context of, of all the times and the seasons of our lives, and that life can sometimes feel more like a, a storm than a, than a stroll through the park, but even in those times, God is with us, and our confidence has to be rooted not in ourselves or not in the hope of the things of this world, but rooted in the person who God has revealed himself to be. That we have to come to believe and to trust that he is the God who is always on guard. He's the God who is always on watch. He's the God who stands that even though he is the creator of all things and he's the maker of heaven and earth, nonetheless, he cares about your life and my life. 
And he doesn't want even one foot to stumble on your path as you walk through the journey of life with him. And so God promises that he is always awake. He's always attentive. He never is unaware of what you're struggling with, what you're going through. And can I even say secretly what you're carrying inside that no one else knows? God says, I I, I see that and I know that and I can protect you from even that as well if you let me. And so we see this picture that continues to emerge over and over again as we get to know the Bible and we hear the stories of God's journeying with his people that far from being a distant and uninvolved and kind of this unknown deity who lives up in heaven way off far away, the maker of heaven and earth is a more deeply personal and intimate God than you ever could have guessed or imagined. That the creator God of the Bible is also the present and intimate God that walks with you through every experience of life, who's always awake and ready to protect, who stands at your right hand, who covers you in the heat of the day and guards you from the dangers at night. And when we come to understand who this God really is, this intimate picture of a loving and a caring God who's actively at work in our lives to help us and to guide us and to protect us, that same picture becomes even more clear when we begin to understand that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment and the culmination of who God has been revealing himself to be from the beginning. In Jesus, we come to realize that this maker of heaven and earth was not content to sit in heaven on his throne, but did not consider equality with God something to be held on to or maintained, but he humbled himself and becoming human, he made himself a a humble servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because what else can I do, God says, than to show you the extent of my love and my compassion and my care for you other than to give up this life of my son? What more could I do that would be a greater statement of how true everything that I've been saying about myself for centuries has been? Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and then his victory over sin and death and the devil in his resurrection means that, that there's no longer anything in this world that we have to fear or that this world can do to us that God cannot rescue us from, that God cannot redeem and turn for our good and his glory. That's why Hebrews 12, 2 reminds us that as Christians, to stay the course, to finish the race, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus which we sang today, is the rock. He's the mountain. He's the hill. He's the city of God. He's the promised place that if we lift our eyes up to the place where our hope comes from, he will not disappoint. When we fix our eyes on Jesus and we look to God to be our help and we look to God to be our hope, we join with the Apostle Paul in gaining a new knowledge that that is too wonderful to even fully comprehend that that the God of the universe sets aside all of life into a completely new category and experience for us so that Paul says in Romans 8, 28 this way, that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. If that doesn't blow your mind, 
You haven't thought about this verse long enough. We know, Paul says, in all things God works, God guards, God protects, God watches over, God is with us, God never abandons us, God doesn't sleep, he never slumbers, God is always and and constantly working to care for us and to invite us to, to trust in him, to know that all things can work for our good when we entrust them into his hands. Now I know Right? Our own experiences of life can be hard and challenging and difficult, and it's hard to maintain this kind of confidence and faith when we find ourselves in those dark and difficult places. As you reflected earlier on your own life's journey, what were the, what were the things that are weighing on your heart today? What were those things that, 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 that are challenges and difficulties and fears that you have, whether for yourself or for those that you love or for the world that we live in? And as you go from here today, where are you going to look for help and for hope? What are you going to fix your eyes on that you think is going to be the answer or the solution for you? And maybe, just maybe, today can be a reminder that fixing your eyes on Jesus is really the only hope that we have in this world. And yet, fixing our eyes on Jesus is the hope of the world. And that's what God has been telling us from the beginning. You see, Psalm 121 reminds us that we can have confidence that the maker of heaven and earth, the the God who created you and me and knows us better than we know ourselves, stands as the guardian of your life and the guardian of my life, that he's watching over your coming out and your going in, and that he will always be there for you both in the present and, and in the future and forevermore. Jesus is the one who brings that that intimate God into a personal relationship with each one of us. And I just want to wrap up with the words that Jesus left his disciples at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew as well. In 28, verse 20, he said, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your presence with us. That you're, you're not just a God who, who stands afar off and watches us from your throne in heaven, but, but you have come into our world, that you have entered into our lives, and, and that you want to, to engage and be a part of our experience of life in this world in ways that maybe we are, we're never even fully aware of or familiar with. God, even as we bow our heads and close our eyes, we we spiritually lift our eyes to you again today. We lift our eyes to the mountain, to the the, the heavenly city, the the, the throne of God, which is represented for us in the face and the person of your son, Jesus. That you have invited us to come and to, to sit in your throne room, not, not to, to shrink in fear, but, but to sit at the feet of Jesus and to learn from him because we know that he is humble and gentle in heart. 
and that he has promised us that when we're weary and we're tired and we're beaten down, that we will find rest for our souls. And so God, we need your rest again today. We lift our eyes to the hills. From where does our help come from? God, our help comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth, and the one who gave his very life to bring us back to you. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask you again to fill us with the love of your son, through the power of your spirit, and the joy of believing.